No, no, never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. One of you is going to betray me. What are you, who, who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What are you talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what are you, what are you talking about? And you know the way to where I am going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kick into some scripture. Father, we thank you that the things that we talk about today are things that occurred 2,000 years ago in a, a room way smaller than this, with a group of people who were scared, worried, and yet the conversation that was held there has changed the world. And so as we engage with the scripture this morning, these words of Jesus, we pray, Lord, that the power of those words will impact us as well. So God, we invite you by your spirit to lead us and open up the eyes of our understanding and our hearts to be receptive to your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I'm calling my talk The Price. The Price. And we're talking about the price you pay for having faith. And Jesus talks specifically about this to his disciples in this upper room. But what I wanted to do today is just sort of start off by looking at the really big picture of what this, this uh, portion of Scripture is that we're looking at and how it falls in place with a whole lot of other things Jesus is talking about. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit. Jesus introduced the Holy Spirit as someone who is going to come and give you peace, give you understanding. And so when we read about this, we, we were encouraged by this, we were strengthened by this, that Jesus wasn't going to go and leave us as orphans, but the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would be our companion on this journey. And then we looked at this area of fruitfulness, and we, last week we looked or heard particularly from David Pierce, from his mission group Steiger International, and how fruitfulness is a, an ongoing part of our lives as Christians. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But when you're with me, you can bear good fruit. Okay, so fruitfulness is really, really important. Today, we're going to look at the subject of persecution. And then after Easter, we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in a different way. And the reason why I wanted to raise the bigger picture is that you can see the pattern of thinking that Jesus is bringing in here. First, he's talking about our strengthening. Then he's talking about our fruitfulness. And then he's saying, it's not always going to be easy. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit coming in into our lives again in a different way. So you can see how it is that there's a complete picture being built here of what our lives will actually look like as we serve Christ. Uh, we will have the empowering of God, but we'll also know fruitfulness as a result of that. That will come with some trouble. But remember, the Holy Spirit is still with you. You can see this, this pattern here. Does that make sense? Is that helpful in some way? I hope it is. Um, the, the truth about Christianity is that Christianity and persecution have always been partners. We don't like to think of it that way, but this is a simple truth. Wherever Christianity has been, there's always been resistance. And we think of the story of Jesus being born. Uh, when the wise men came looking for this baby who had been born, Herod was envious 
He was the ruler of uh, Israel at the time, Herod the Great. And he sent out his soldiers to Bethlehem where the child was born, Jesus was born. And he ordered that all the children, the boys, two years old or under, were to be killed so that he could, with one fell swoop, kill off any possibility of this young Messiah being born. So persecution right there from the moment that Jesus was born. And so it's an ongoing part of our Christian experience. By the time uh, 64 AD rolled around, uh, Nero, who was the, the Caesar, the ruler, the emperor of Rome, ordered that Christians would be persecuted and put to death when he blamed them, the Christian community, for a huge fire that ravaged Rome in that same year. People say that, uh, historians say that it was Nero himself who got the fire started, but uh, he blamed the Christians, this group, this small sect of Judaism, which was emerging in ways and having an influence upon that community. So he ordered that the Christians be killed, be put to death. And of course, all around the world, even today, there are pockets and populations of Christians that are being persecuted. We see it in the Middle East as ISIS takes on the whole world, and Christians included in that. We see it in Egypt, where the Coptic Christians are being terrorized just before Christmas. A gunman, some gunmen shot up a bus full of Christians and killed lots of them. And so these stories go on. On the Thai-Burma border, there's a group of people called the Karen, and this group are essentially homeless, hundreds of thousands of people who have no state, no place of their own, and they are largely a Christian community, the Karen. And so all around the world, there are people who are being persecuted. Uh, communism, of course, has had a huge amount of impact upon the Christian church, pushing the church back uh, in the days of the early communist reign within Russia, uh, thousands and thousands of clergy, priests, were, were hung, literally hung, killed as a group. In China, there's been challenges all the way. And so I don't have to remind you that we live in this world where there's persecution. So when Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said to us, hey, look, it's not always going to be easy, we can see that that's been the truth. So let's have a look at what he, he said in this upper room. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. My screens have just gone off there. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. And at the end there, they hated me without reason is a reference to a couple of the Psalms where uh, they are, there's a messianic prophecy in the Psalms which talks about the fact that when the Messiah comes, they will hate him without reason. So here we are looking at the scripture and uh, 
Jesus is saying, not only do they hate me, but they hate the one who sent me. And this is a real, real slap, if you like, in the face of the religious leaders of the day who thought they were there preparing for the Messiah to come. They would be there to usher him in, and in some form of, with some form of grandeur and celebration, they expected the Messiah to appear. Jesus has come, and they don't accept him. And so Jesus has said, not only have they rejected me, but they've rejected the Father who sent me as well. And then he's saying, now listen, you guys, it's been tough for me. It's also going to be tough for you. So we need to look at this thing called persecution and try to put it in its context. And the way I want to do that this morning is by reasoning with you in the first instance. Persecution doesn't make any sense unless we recognize we're in a spiritual battle. Let me explain why persecution doesn't make any sense or persecution of the Christian community doesn't make any sense. Every government, every government wants honest and moral citizens, hard-working people, tax-paying, healthy family relationships, a kind and caring society, drug-free, abuse-free, ism-free, that's racism, sexism, ageism, okay? So all of those, that's what every government, every normal government would want, okay? Does it make sense? And so as a Christian community, the fruit of the Spirit the byproduct of us knowing Jesus and having him fully formed in our life will develop these sorts of attitudes and, and values within the Christian community. We're called by the Bible to be honest. We're told to pay our taxes. We're called to have a high level of morality. Okay, We're called to and demonstrated ways in which we can have healthy families. These are always... Challenges, of course, because human relationships are a struggle at times. Uh, but we're called to create a kind and caring society. So therefore, Christians should be the exemplary model of citizenship, shouldn't they? Yeah? Well, if I was the government and I had a bunch of people who were prepared to pay their taxes, who weren't causing trouble for the police, it would create a whole different society, wouldn't it? Of course it is. Of course it would. However, that's not the society that we live in. And the reason why we see this is that in spite of the logic that a Christian community would be an ideal community to have within your society, the simple truth is this, is that we're in a spiritual battle. And even those who might affirm our moral stands, our relationship stands, our desire to pay our taxes and all those positive things, there's something there that causes anger and frustration when people are talking about the person of Jesus. Now, this shouldn't worry us because it's quite biblical. And the most and best biblical example of this is the Apostle Paul, who was called Saul because why? He was intimidating the church, chasing them down, throwing them in jail, and then God appeared to him and he got radically converted and he wrote for us the majority of the New Testament scriptures. So when people are giving you a hard time, they may be well on the edge of becoming a Christian. Okay, So you can, you can look at it positively, can't you? And we're going to see more of this in a little while. And I know for myself, when I became a Christian, one of the most apparent things that happened around my life was the spiritual uh, battle, the spiritual warfare that occurred in my life. Now, I was working part-time down at the Tapuna Tavern um, when I became a Christian. Um, and... 
I can remember only a week or so after I had this born-again experience, it was like this tide of relationships changed for me. All the guys that I was serving the beer, they used to sort of, g'day Craig, how you doing? Yeah, good, thanks mate, sweet as. And, um, and yet what happened when I became a Christian, I didn't stand up and preach to them from the bar, but these guys turned on me and I, I found them getting really aggressive towards me and I couldn't work it out. I'd go out behind the bar and collect glasses and different things and people were trying to pick fights with me. We had a visiting rugby team in there one day, one evening, and uh, uh, from, um, anyway, down the Eastern Bay, I won't say where specifically, um, but um, Eastern Bay plenty, and this guy just grabbed me, turned me around, and, and did a hucker in front of me, and I'm like, I'm only serving beer, I'm not trying to have a war against you, and I, and I walked away, and I found that I was in a spiritual battle, something I'd never been in before, and it was fascinating for me to realize that this was happening because of the change in my life. My spiritual life had become alive because of Christ in me. Yeah. So persecution doesn't make sense unless you realize that we're in a battle. And that's exactly what Ephesians 6 tells us when it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I've just stopped working at the tavern, and, uh, and I'm no longer facing this. No, it's not true. Um, but these spiritual forces are. They are real. And different parts of the world will experience this in very, very powerful ways with regards to the, the spiritual powers and principalities that are powerful and evident in the world at any given stage and place in society. So, so we have been told here that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that this battle is not against flesh and blood. So when that persecution comes your way, when people are intimidating you, you've got to stop and realize that this might not necessarily be something they're even familiar with doing. They might be having an argument with you or pushing up against you in a way that is completely foreign to even them, but they're in a spiritual battle and they don't know why there's this resentment there or a cynicism towards you. And often in New Zealand, it's that passive-aggressive stuff, isn't it? It's that sense in which you're being held back at work because the boss knows you're a Christian and he doesn't necessarily want one of his lead managers or, or, or uh, tradesmen or anything like that to be a Christian, so you get held back. You know, you might be in this passive-aggressive environment where socially people are engaged with each other, but you're left on the outer, okay? People won't invite you to, to certain things. And so you just find this, this passive-aggressive thing going on all around you, yeah? One of the things that uh, you've got to remind yourself of what Jesus said here is that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Hate strong language. But let's just go to that second verse there. It starts on the top line. It says, if you, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Back in the 1960s, a Presbyterian theologian by the name of Lloyd Gehring came out and said, there is no such thing as Jesus' resurrection. 
we can talk about resurrection hope, he said, but there is no resurrection. And he was a lecturer at Knox College, the Presbyterian College down in Dunedin. Now, this was scandalous in its day, and the Presbyterians got really upset that one of their own would go out and publicly proclaim this. And so a, a group of men within the Presbyterian Church decided to take Mr. Gearing to court for heresy. You could do that in the day. They had a, a law against heresy. Uh, they have a law against blasphemy too, but they're currently as we speak, or well, next week, they're going to get rid of that law, that blasphemy law. Um, anyway, they went to court and the outcome was, was minimal, right? But Mr. Gearing went on his way and continued to be a lecturer in the college uh, until his retirement. Now, this story came up again because Mr. Gearing just turned 100 um, just a few weeks ago. So it's fascinating that he'd lived that long. Uh, but, um, well, God's grace, to be quite honest. Um, however, in the final term of the Labour government, um, Helen Clark gave Lloyd Gearing a knighthood for services to religion. Why do I say that? Well, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. No other Christian leader for the last 20 years has ever been given any form of recognition like that. But the guy who's against the church, a guy who defies the resurrection of Christ, somehow gets a knighthood. Does it make sense? Yeah, sure does. <laughs> yeah, because the world loves its own. And so we see this story around us here happening in New Zealand, and it's part of that subtle, passive-aggressive, in-your-face middle finger being pulled to the church. Okay, you know what that looks like. I don't have to show you that. Okay. But um, the church itself has always suffered this, this persecution. And this persecution uh, famously sort of began in the early days of the church. And here we have a little part of a story that I want to show the, the, the disciples, the apostles were out preaching and uh, the Pharisees didn't like it. And it says here, when they heard this, that's the Pharisees, they were furious and wanted to put them, in, put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. And it's quite a long passage, so I'll explain to you what happens. Gamaliel says, look, this group of apostles, they say they're from God. Um, Maybe it's going to be like another group of people who have raised up over the decades and centuries before, and, and they get killed and the whole thing dies down. We don't have to worry about it. But if these folks are from God and we're persecuting them, we will find ourselves fighting against God himself. So it was quite a wise thing to say. And then they pulled the disciples back in again for them to have the verdict. And the verdict went like this. His, Gamaliel's, speech persuaded them. And they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> it's a rather fascinating look at justice here, isn't it? Uh, we've just decided they actually haven't done anything wrong. We might be fighting God himself. We'll just give them a little flogging anyway, which doesn't make sense. But then something that 
really gets our attention here is that they walk away rejoicing because, why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In other words, their own lifestyle now was such that they were being seen as associated with Jesus, being the same as Jesus, doing the same things as Jesus, and therefore counted in amongst Jesus. And on that basis, they felt that they must be doing something right. We must be getting this Christianity thing, must be doing it pretty well. Why? Because those people out there are prepared to give us a flogging to stop us from doing it. Takes a bit of getting your head around, doesn't it? But when persecution comes your way, when people threaten you or challenge you or intimidate you, you've got to stop a little bit like the disciples did and say, yes, I must be doing something right. Yeah? Now, I'm not talking about crazy stuff, because you know, our media picks up on all the really strange sides of our Christian faith. Some of our brothers and sisters are, um, well, put it this way, when we talk about Christian fundamentalism, I like to think we put the fun in fundamentalism. Other people just put the mental part in. And anyway, that's not very politically correct, but it's true. It's true. Okay. Persecution served as a catalyst for mission in the early church. The historians said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And there's a lot of truth in this. When we read the book of Acts, we find that the early church under persecution was forced out of Jerusalem. And so the book of Acts, which talks about the acts of the disciples and the acts of the Holy Spirit working together, uh, this came about as a result of the church being persecuted. Uh, Simon, sorry, Simon the sorcerer was converted. Philip the Ethiopian was converted. And, and so it goes on. We just see all these people getting converted one after another. And that happened immediately after Stephen was stoned to death. Okay? He says a great persecution fell upon the church. And that's what caused evangelism to occur and mission to occur. Paul wrote these words, and I want us to have a look at them, to Timothy about this persecution. He said, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now here's Paul giving his, his philosophy of suffering here. But I want, for our purposes today, just to pick up on that last sentence, because I think it's easy to miss it, but it is very, very powerful. Paul says, I am 
and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What Paul is talking about here is he's saying, there are things in my life which I have given over to God. I have entrusted them to him. Okay? You see, there's two, there's two ways you can go when you're talking about trusting other things to God or for yourself. You can either say, God is going to control the outcome of this, or I'm going to control the outcome of this. Take, for example, uh, a call to mission is a call to live by faith, often, where you're dependent upon the support of the local church. And if you're concerned about your financial well-being, you won't entrust that to God. You'll hold on to that yourself. You'll say, look, I'd love to be a missionary, but I can't do the finance thing. I just can't entrust God for my, for my needs. So for Paul, that was entrusted to God. For Paul, maybe it was his family that he also had to wrestle with. Because if he was being persecuted, surely his family was a, was a soft target. How do you feel when your children get to that age and stage of life when they're leaving home, you know? Some of you are saying, praise God. But others, for all of us, we go, yeah, that's right. I get the privilege of raising these children to hand them over to God's keeping. If I don't, I'll forever be on their case stopping them from growing up. They'll just live under my, under my roof all the time, maybe. What about your health and well-being? Can you entrust that to God when people are called to third world nations where there's lots of horrible diseases and all those things and poor food and other places? Can you entrust that to God as well? And maybe one of the harder ones, what about your reputation as a Christian in the workplace? In whatever form or fashion your reputation takes, can you entrust your reputation to God that he would take care of your name? a name that is now tightly linked with the person of Jesus. Does it worry you that they say, oh yeah, there goes Bill, he's a Bible basher, you know. Hey, there goes Fred, God botherer. Yeah? You know, for me, in my local community, because um, I was raised out to Pune, um, I know that uh, some of my old mates just refer to me as the Rev. How's the Rev doing? Well, the holy man. That's my other nickname. I don't mind that one. The guys I go hunting with call me the holy man. Even on their phones, I saw it the other day. H-man. H-man. Michaela's Mrs. H-man. Yeah. So, but that's a bit of fun. Um, Craig, all right? Don't start something here. Too late, yeah. Um, what I'm saying is that your reputation has to be entrusted to God too. Because you know, we know that if you're sincere about your faith, uh, people will talk about you behind your back and they'll count you in or count you out. They'll stereotype you. And, and that's something that we all suffer from in some, for, some, some form along the way. The bigger challenge for us is a very, very, very subtle one. You see, the gospel promises us a lot of comfort. Most of us don't sign up for the persecution. 
Anybody sign up for the persecution? I didn't sign up for the persecution, but it comes with the territory. The difficulty is that we live in a very therapeutic world where everything is channeled along the lines of what makes you feel good. And even Christian faith can be interpreted by some as how can Jesus make you feel better? How's your self-esteem, your confidence, your well-being, your peace? Uh, These things can be marketed easily with a a Western worldview really being the, the ultimate outcome that Jesus is supposed to deliver on. He's supposed to make you feel good about yourself, feel better about yourself, certainly not put you in a place where you feel conflicted or are inflicted with other people's opinions of you in a negative way. And so when we look at this, we see what Jesus offers us. Remember the big picture right from the beginning? The Holy Spirit gives us comfort, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That means even in times of difficulty, there's a peace that's available to you so that your fruitfulness will be evident And you can keep on doing this work that God calls you to. And then we talked about this persecution. That's all part of the deal. And then there's more soothing that comes, more comfort, God's comfort that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what the bigger picture of the upper room is giving us. There's lots of pictures. But the really big picture is that there are things in your life that are going to change. You'll be filled with the Spirit. You'll be fruitful, but you will know persecution because they hated me first and there'd be times when they will hate you. But that's okay. I told you this would be the case. So it shouldn't surprise you. And just be aware that, again, the Holy Spirit will come and bring you strength and bear you comfort so that you can do this all over again. Tomorrow. And the next day. And the day after that. Until... As Paul said, everything has been entrusted to him until that day. What's that day? It's the day Jesus returns or we meet him halfway. I'm just going to invite the band to come in and um, I'd just like you to um, to stay seated here for a moment as they come in. And I just want to lead us in prayer. So let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you that uh, when we read about persecution, we read about times in Scripture that seem to be quite intolerable, we realize that in the midst of those times, your spirit was powerful and present. You're the one who gave Stephen words and visions just before he was put to death. You're the one who, through persecution, caused the church to grow, to to go out on mission. And even today, Lord, we think of people around the world who are struggling because they bear the name of Jesus. And so, God, we pray that in our workplaces, in our homes, that... um, you would give us the ability to be able to stand in the same fashion. That we can be confident in your name. And when we get pushed back, Lord, we just know that that person might be really close to becoming a Christian, just as Saul was. Or we can have comfort in knowing that this is expected, this is normal, even though at times it brings us discomfort. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that 
in light of these words that Jesus spoke about 2,000 years ago, we, we want to look at this persecution as something that is all part of that journey that we're on. We embrace it, we own it, and we say, yeah, this is normal. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So God, give us strength just to stand our ground and to be people who live the Christian life in a public way. God, we need your strength for that every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.